welcome to the inaugural edition of A Special Place in Hell, a podcast in which an aging Gen X author and a self-hating millennial activist will come together once a week for a lively discussion, thoroughly and conclusively solving our culture war problems with their combined wit, wisdom, and most importantly, lived experiences. I'm Megan Daum. The self-hating millennial is Sarah Hader. Sarah. Hi. So why are you self-hating? Just the first, just the, like the top reason. I'm, I mean, I, does it, I, mean I, I feel like we don't need to explain to this audience why I need to be a self-hating. I have no idea who we are. <laughs> just, they're just like, what, who? Okay. Self, I mean, you're just self-hating because you're a millennial? Right. Okay. Okay. I'm self-hating because I hate my last name and I don't know how to pronounce it. I think I just said Megan Daum and it's caused endless confusion because this is this is worthy of its own episode, but for years I said Dom, and um, there's a long, boring backstory to that. But um, when I started doing my podcast, The Unspeakable, a few years ago, I started saying Daum, uh, and it just made everything. It so made wait, what what is it? Okay, what? well it's it's I don't it really is neither. So just to be super fast, when I was growing up, it was Daum. And I was constantly correcting people because they would say Dom, like they would default to Dom. And my parents um, were like very, they really wanted to distance themselves from their own families. And like they, they, they had met like a German professor when they were first married. And I guess the German professor was like, it's not Dom, it's Dom. And so they started saying that. Uh, and so we grew up saying that. And then at a certain point, I realized that my cousins and all these relatives that my mother especially had like thought she was too good for they all said dom so i just kind of made a decision i was like in my you know early 30s at that point to just not only stop correcting people but to start saying dom <laughs> so so i said i dom. like dom well okay but that but so everybody who had known me up until i was like 29 said dom and then i started saying dom and then when i start, started the podcast I, you know, my father had died like, you know, a year or so before and I started the podcast and I like would open my mouth to say my name and Dom just, I felt so guilty. Like it couldn't come out. And I was like, it it doesn't, you know, neither. (laughs) I started saying Dom. Neither of my names are like how technically they're supposed to be pronounced because they're both in you know in urdu which is a different language right. so the, pronoun- the pronunciations of of both sarah and hater are different oh um and i don't i mean i don't care i i think i tried to correct people um when i first came to america and i was a kid and i tried to do that for a couple of weeks and then <laughs> quickly realized I, it was never going to work so what is, it, um, what is it supposed to be? Am I putting you on the spot? It's 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 Sarah Heather. That's what it is. So it's like a totally it's a oh. different way of saying you've got to roll the R with in the in the Sarah. Um, and it's it's Hispanics. Uh, Hispanics yeah. tend to they, they 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 pronounce it right the the Sarah part usually. Um, so yeah, you were but like it seven doesn't... years old and you were trying to make this correction. I did, and then it was just so it, no one was getting it, and all these other kids were like, "What? What are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> Your name is Sarah." I was like, "Okay, okay, but see, that's I'm, you know, I'm, it's fine. I'm envious because you have like a straightforward name. You have um, easily pronounceable name privilege, which is a privilege category <laughs> that I've heard people talk about. Actually, believe it or not, having no. a simple last name, yeah, mm-hmm. having a simple last name 
is a privilege category. So you that puts you a step ahead of me. Um, so that that solves it. So um, all right. Well, so we've started this podcast uh, because we part partly because we had a great conversation a few weeks ago on on my podcast and. I have been uh, wanting to do something with a partner, um, something just a lot more fun. Not that my podcast isn't a, a barrel of laughs. So we're just going to talk about uh, stuff in the news and um, especially stuff pertaining to gender, not always, but frequently. Um, so I don't know. Do you want to just like tell people who you are? You have a lot more Twitter followers than I do. So I think more people know Wh- who you which... are anyway. Like where yeah. do you come from? What's your deal? Um. Well, uh, I I come from uh, kind of a strange background, which you know I, I wouldn't want to get into too much. I presume many of the people listening to this will know who I am, but um, I got involved in I guess the public space when I started a nonprofit organization that advocates on behalf of ex-Muslims. That's people who've left the religion of Islam. Um, and then I and I really started speaking out um, when I noticed that it was actually quite unpopular to be an ex-Muslim and the kinds of things that I was talking about, um, which is to say the you know criticism of the religion and problems within the community. Um, I found that people didn't really want to listen to it. Um, that it was it was one of those things that was became you know, part and parcel of what I now call woke politics. Um, And so I, you know, I I started thinking, okay, there's something wrong. Something's wrong with our discourse. Something's happening and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, And I think a lot of people, Megan, you included, um, like Mm -hmm. we were all just sort of swept up in this Mm -hmm. wave of just coming up together and noticing something's wrong. (laughs) Is it just me? But it's like, is it just, they should have called it like hashtag, is it just me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does does anyone else smell this? Right. Um uh yeah, so I I I started then sort of discussing other issues that I've had um including uh, you know a lot to do with gender, a lot to do with feminism mm-hmm. and um you know what I hope that we'll be able to discuss in this podcast is you know a kind of discussion about women's issues and and just gender roles in general and sex in general that I you know from a perspective that I don't think is often present in in mainstream discourse at least um and I think you know, Megan and I we were talking uh, is this is this the first time we we when we started like DMing was was when I we were we were talking about why isn't there a female Jordan Peterson oh <laughs> yeah. um maybe so maybe so so, yeah, so I think yeah um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's when we connected. And I, right. I've still been thinking about that, you know, like where, uh, you know, why isn't there this other option um, for for women outside of like the mainstream, you know, yes, queen, girl boss. Right. Um, kind of feminism. And also not like a, a Republican. Right, right. Like also Phyllis Schlafly 3.0. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some like people like Christina Hoff Summers talks about mm-hmm. that stuff a lot. Um, and mm-hmm. Camille Paglia, actually, some of my favorite YouTube videos are Camille Paglia and Christina Hoff Summers uh, hashing a lot of this stuff out. But yeah, um, I do think that there's, you know, especially when it comes to like questions of biological imperative and, um, you know, what is, what is uh, nature versus what is, you know, societal, you know, the societal norms. Um, a lot of women 
don't like to talk about that stuff. Or I feel they don't talk about it in the right way. Let's just put it that way. So we're going to talk about this in exactly, exactly, in exactly the right, right way. We're not going to have one <laughs> misstep ever. Um, yeah. So, and we should say that the name of our show, A Special Place in Hell, uh, it comes from a, a line that is usually attributed to Madeline Albright. Uh, she said there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And um, it's been, you know, apparently there are like t-shirts and mugs. This is a meme. There's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women is a meme. Uh, so we're just calling our show a special place in hell because we don't help other women. <laughs> and the world is hell. And this is a special place. It works on many levels. Yeah, it's multidimensional. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and yeah, people know who I am or maybe they don't, they probably, they probably don't. I'm a, I'm, I, I, we should also say that we have a big generational divide and that's part of the magic of, of, uh, this show, uh, possibly you are 30, 30. Yes. I'm 30. I am not 30. Definitely not 30. (laughs) I am, um, I am more than two decades older than 30. So I actually could be your mother. If oh wow! We were from a certain you know that bums me out. I, I yeah, I didn't. Sorry, I didn't. Th- <laughs> I, like it was a buzzkill. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. So so we've got a big age difference, but you are you're kind of a traitor to your generational cohort, right? Yeah. 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 Um. So so yeah. Um. So we're going to talk about lots of stuff. We're going to talk about um the Matt Walsh documentary about uh, it's called what is a woman we're recording this on June 18th. And so people have been talking about that uh, over the last few weeks. And we're going to talk about this huge piece in the New York times magazine by Emily Bazelon about youth gender transition um, that it's going to be in tomorrow's uh, print edition of the New York times. But first you uh, sent me an incredible piece also very long We've done a lot of reading this week, i got to say. Yeah. Many, many words. Uh, from The Intercept, uh, just about um, how terrible the nonprofit world is. And that's something you already knew. So yeah. maybe you want to talk about that a little. Yeah, yeah. So this was just, you know, for me, a very cathartic, you know, experience um, reading through this this piece. Um, so Ryan Grimm, just to give people a little bit of a background, he's, um, you know, uh, the Intercepts DC bureau chief. I don't. I don't even know what that means exactly. But uh, he he wrote this very very long piece. He um, interviewed many many different executive directors of progressive advocacy organizations. Um, the the piece is called "Elephant in the Zoom," which is, <laughs> I, you know, I I, I love That's puns. Uh, but specifically focuses on, on how meltdowns uh, have brought progressive advocacy groups to a standstill. Um, and going through it, there was just um, all these personal accounts from executive directors or you know various senior leaders and nonprofit organizations that were talking about how there's just so much internal strife that's going on that they're spending an inordinate amount of time 
on you know what is what is essentially just bs right um there was one uh executive director who said that he was spending or she was spending i forget if it was a man or a woman don't gender no, it, was, it, was, it was a man matter. Don't <laughs> they they said that they were spending 90 to 95 percent of their time on internal strife whereas before it would have been 25 to 30 percent tops i mean even that even lot. that's <laughs> oh i wish the good old days when we were only spending 25 to 30 percent of our time on internal strife now by yeah. internal strife you mean people like accusing others of microaggressions on zoom what are we talking about i mean people are accusing others of basically being racist in various ways and sexist <laughs> and all you know i mean it's it's that's it's why your... you go to work at a nonprofit. <laughs> organization like in my time you went to work for one of these organizations because you wanted to wear j jill clothes like that was the thing what i don't even know what that oh, is this is why <laughs> j jill clothes are like the clothes that um, women who work for nonprofit organizations wore in the in the 80s and beyond you know like the flowy um you know like like a lot of mm -hmm. earth tones and mm -hmm. natural sort of textures and a lot of scarves and dangling earrings mm. kind of eileen fisher um, mm -hmm. but like that, that direction. And, and if, if you wanted to dress like that, you would go work for a nonprofit organization. You know, what, one thing that struck me about this piece, it, it's not just political groups. Like there was a ton of drama going on in the Sierra club, like, like organizations mm -hmm. that I wouldn't have thought had any kind of political mm -hmm. leaning necessarily. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Do you think it's because of the personality profiles of somebody who would go into this line of work? I mean, not only do you have to care and not, uh, you know, need to make so much money necessarily. Is there like a certain sort of psychological profile? Like, yeah, that causes I mean, people to then act like this. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just he here. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really guessing, but it's, it's of course something I see in my day to day work. Um, the kind of person that that goes into the nonprofit space, of course, they, they care, right? They're caring people, and so that could, that could mean. I do care. And that could mean I want to be seen as caring, um, which are two different things, of course. And, mm -hmm. and, and the problem is, is that there are truly many people who do care and they are very, you know, they're easily confused by, you know, extreme activists that might come in and say, you are doing me so much harm. You know, you are like you are you are destroying, you know, me in some in, in some deep way. You're you're harming me and I'm marginalized and you're hurting marginalized people. You're, you know, destroying the, the cause for I mean, all this stuff. I can't even I, I, I'm not even like, good. Like, at, like, oh, <laughs> they just like lapse into the jargon. But, yeah. Right. But they it, and 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 once so if you're if you're a nice you know caring liberal type and someone throws all this at you all these accusations at you you think oh no i don't want to be this person i don't want to hurt marginalized people i don't you know um, i want to be part of the solution right. and i want to be part of um you know uh the healing or whatever um so so what what happens is a lot of these nice caring people capitulate Right. extremists. So they're not going to their their default position is not going to be to stand up to the mob the way we might no, imagine no. a business leader would although they don't either of these yeah, guys. Never. Yeah, no. they they never uh I mean it's so it's so rare to see a nonprofit leader that can stand up to claims of to to, get, to the kind of like honestly it's, it's emotional abuse, mm -hmm. right? And manipulation to say that if you know to say that if you don't support me, you are an, you know, whatever phobe, racist, sexist, whatever. I mean, these are these are the kind of people who really are deeply affected and wounded if you if you call them these things because they they often dedicate their entire lives to these like 
to the pursuit of you know justice or something something good and pure right right um so it's it's just it's just a powerfully effective tool you know to use this kind of language um uh and it works and unfortunately these organizations that have a lot of works in nonprofits are there. There's so much work. There's always too much work. There's always too much work and not enough money and not enough time. And then on top of that, you have endless drama. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it got me thinking when I was reading this, it, it, when I'm, you know, I, I'm, uh, have led, um, organizations to lead an organization. Um, when I'm thinking about this drama, then when it comes into my lap, I'm thinking, all these people that are stealing from the cause, you know, whether, whether that's how they would phrase it or not, that's how I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking this is money that could have gone to advancing something important. Um, and instead I, you know, cause staff time is money, right? right. <laughs> staff time is money and energy and all of that is important. Um, and it is being bled out by this, this, you know, these bullshit, um, you know, drama episodes, um, and, and beyond the fact that it's going to, that it's money that's being taken away from a cause. It's also donors don't give for this, right? The donors are giving their money. Yeah. They don't like, um, it. and you know, sometimes it's just nonprofits are funded through like these big, you know, pocketed people. And that happens a lot, but there's also often like a huge base of smaller dollar donors, you know, and they're giving a hundred dollars a year. That's the best they can do, but it means a lot to them to support, you know, the environment or whatever. Right. And it is it is truly um, a, a betrayal of the trust that donors you know place in you when they give you their right. their hard earned cash. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's interesting too because I mean we we hear a lot about what's happened with the ACLU, for instance, um, or like Southern Poverty Law Center, Planned Parenthood. But again, I was just amazed that this is just happening across the board. I mean, the Sierra Club meltdown that was over there. Their founder John Muir was had an association with eugenicists, which like a lot of people did at that time. Like it's sort mm-hmm. of this, you know, it's the outrage archaeology kind of mm-hmm. maneuver. So you could, you know, you could, any basically any organization that was founded, <laughs> I don't know, before yeah. uh, yesterday is going to have some kind of problematic element to it, just by virtue of you know, yesterday is is inherently problematic anyway. For, so so like there's no winning i mean it is mm-hmm. it is a snake eating its own tail mm-hmm. um and i mean do you think that the people that you know this the the staff members or these the people who are waging these complaints is it be, is it because they're not getting paid very much that they feel entitled to make these complaints yeah i don't know i don't know if money has anything to do with it you know i don't i don't think that's what they're getting out of it um because volunteers will do this too um oh wow uh, you know so it's 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 it, it it's more of the generational thing. It's more of this is this is how they come to work. This is the mindset that that they bring to work. Um, I think it might be a kind of like a you know the personalist political kind of thing where where justice begins you know at home you know at work you know at my desk, um, and I I think that they don't understand the realities of how a business works and how an organization works. And some of that might just be due to youth or how the um, world works. I mean, really yeah. just how human nature works or any mm-hmm. kind of uh, organizational or hierarchical structure. Well, I mean, it's like, what do you think changed? Because, you know, when I was, I worked at a couple of nonprofits when I was, you know, younger um, and it would not have occurred to anybody that they should 
stand up to senior management? Like, what do you think changed? It's it's interesting that you even phrase it that way because I think that now the default is to to look at senior management as if they 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 owe you something right? or they're they're somehow just just by virtue of being senior management are guilty of something. So they're, right? Are There's, they parental? Like they owe you something like like as if they're parental. There's just a general suspicion of of hierarchies, you know, and even even if they're they're totally earned and legitimate and and necessary is necessary for the functioning of an organization i think there's just a general there's just a gen, general suspicion hmm. of of power right and and right. senior officials but they're they're in power they're powerful people and um they're invoking their power and um and, and i think they can't help but look at everything through this lens um and it it creates a circumstance where you're you're in a, a senior official in one of these organizations you actually feel more vulnerable than uh, a junior staff member might, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And of course it leads to a dynamic where you, you you don't get any work done. Um, You're, you know, you're, you're in the best case scenario, you're just on edge a little bit all the time. Um, But it's, it's, it's definitely a tail wagging the dog kind of a, kind of a situation. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the, the Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot. Like, you know, hierarchies are natural. There's always a natural hierarchy in any kind of ecosystem, in the animal kingdom, just in in civilizations of all kinds. But is it because that a lot of these kids, young people, have been like steeped in critical theory and intersectional framework in college, so power automatically just yeah. connotes yeah. something that must be fought? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think there's just a general suspicion of 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 power and 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 always an assumption that it is illegitimate in one way or another. You know, so even and and then even if you try and and try you know try and um make it so that they they can't come at you with those kinds of claims by getting a woman who is also, you know, of color, who is also, you know, gay or whatever. And you try, you try to, 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 to make it so that maybe they can't attack you in those ways, but they will always find a way, you know, there's always a way to say that this person is actually privileged, but ultimately the, by virtue of being a senior official, they are privileged. Um, Right. And 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 you're right that 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 hierarchies are very important for hierarchies are very important to get work done. That's it. And at the end of the day, if you if you um, if you're committed to a cause, you should be comfortable or at least get comfortable with the idea of a of a healthy hierarchy. And I think it's to some degree, this is sort of a poison that's throughout all progressive organizations. It's just this this, you know, reflexive, um, you know, suspicion of anything resembling a hierarchy and then you have these you know circle of friends holding their hands together and who don't get anything done Mm -hmm. yeah and so and this yeah i mean obviously this happens in all kinds of workplaces we just saw it happen in the washington post last week it's it's all over the place but there's a particular flavor to the yeah the yeah the washington the washington i mean it it it, that's a that was a it was interesting that that happened um, so recent, so so um, close to the publication of this article, because I think you see extreme versions of what is about to 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 befall the entire culture, you know, in the nonprofit space, mm-hmm. in the advocacy space, because mm-hmm. the advocacy space, they they are the people who are, um, 
you know, pushing our culture in one way, one direction or the other, or the other, especially all these nonprofits that are, that, that don't, you know, they don't ladle out soup to, to the homeless. They're, they're pushing a social cause. They're, right. you know, their, their entire reason for, for, or, uh, for um, their, their mission and vision is, is to educate people on one issue or another. What they're doing is they are putting out videos. Um, they're acting as a pressure group. Um, they are, uh, you know, uh, putting out publication, all sorts of things to try and push a specific view of how society should be, yeah. um, of how we should feel about a specific issue. And so if, if we see this kind of insanity take over the nonprofit space, um, uh, to this degree, we are definitely going to see, see, um, downstream effects throughout the, you know, the progressive space or any space that's strongly, um, you know, f- inhabited by progressives like media, you know, companies like right. the Washington Post. Right. So do you feel so? So this made you at least feel less crazy, this piece? As, it made know. me feel, I mean, crazy, but also less crazy, but also just mad, you know, um, that that it's gotten to be because by the time, you know, something is published like this in The Intercept and you have so many executive directors saying the same thing, that means it's terrible. Like, right, right, what's out there is terrible. Um, and it is maybe even worse than what I, 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 I thought myself because I am, obviously I'm in, I, or, you know, was in like the sort of this progressive aligned space as, you know, an atheist organization. Um, but because we were, you know, because of the ex-Muslim nature of it, we were always sort of on, on, on sort of a strange, you know, middle ground, yeah. um, when it came to, you know, the, the woke politics. So I, I think we, we were slightly better off, um, or maybe even, maybe even like highly better. I don't, I don't know, but, but it's, it's also, it's also the fact that I was, I've always been around. I've always been a leader in this organization. I've been very visible and very vocal about how I feel about things. And I think that that has, um, been an indirect filter mm-hmm. <laughs> to, you know, so just these sort of uh, woke types, I think, didn't approach well, us in the same way. Right. And it helps that you are a woman and a woman of color, right? If you lay it down, if you lay I, yeah, down the I mean, Yeah, I, I think it does. But, you know, I don't know, because they 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 start to see you as a traitor, which is worse than, you know, like it's it's almost worse than being, you know, a white man is being somebody who technically meets all the right identity requirements, right. but still refuses to say what you think that they must say. Right. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you can only be canceled by your own side. Yeah. They, there's nothing they punish worse than a than a heretic somebody Mm -hmm. somebody who they thought was with them well okay well speaking of that dynamic um should we move on to um our uh our movie our movie of the week um what is a woman (laughs) matt walsh from the daily wire can you explain to me who he is exactly uh matt walsh i mean so i I don't really understand Matt Walsh. He's he's a lot of things, isn't he? Because he's been he's he covered some of these you know stunts and stuff that he's been um, pulling lately um, around the gender issue. Uh, but you can say he's just a pundit, a uh, conservative pundit. Okay. Um, okay. But so is he? A, does he write things? Uh, or does he? Does he? Does... No, I, I think he, he's he's just a political commentator. He has, I think, a podcast or a show or something. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, he has a, he has a podcast. That's right. Okay. Um, and he might have written books in the past. Okay. Um, 
so he has put together a very polished, very entertaining uh, documentary film about um, the gender ideology wars and at the center of it, he's just, it's a very simple premise. He's going around and asking people to define what a woman is. Um, and he talks to everybody from um, sort of academic gender studies types to clinicians who are involved in youth gender transition um, to everyday people on the street. And it's very funny. Uh, how did you, what, what was your, uh, kind of what did you think thoughts of this movie? general yeah. did yeah. you like it did you like it you know <laughs> I liked it yeah I liked it I mean it was very well produced and I don't know what I expected um going in I <laughs> I don't know I'm just so you know because what I know about conservatives and and you know production value it's like from their websites it's they're just <laughs> They're so really? often so bad. Oh, that's so mean. Really? Oh. They, well, because none of the great cinematographers will work for them. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I mean. Who, none of the who, big agencies will represent them. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Well, so so I I thought um, that it was it was very well produced um, and, you know, well edited and uh, overall a fairly, I mean, superficial, but um more or less thorough, like complete uh, picture of the debate with the conspicuous absence of feminists who have been pushing back against gender ideology. I think that for the average person that doesn't know anything about this issue, um, it was a, a fairly good encapsulation of this perspective of the, I guess, gender critical perspective. Um, and you know, covering all the 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 basics, I guess, um, fairly well. Um, and I don't, you know, I I wonder if he really was, you know, nut picking there with the the choice of of pe- you know, people he was he was interviewing. I mean, did you think, you know, a lot of them seemed like that they were intelligent people, you know? Not, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure they have multiple th- degrees. There yeah. was that professor. What did you think of him? The <laughs> That guy was amazing. Um, that I felt like I was watching a Christopher Guest movie at that point. Um, yeah, the 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 um, what is the name? The guy, he had also an incredible name. It was he is he a gender studies professor? Um, and was he? At- he was a sociologist okay. or 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 uh, social scientist. He kept saying that he was okay. a social scientist. Right. So I, I I forget exactly um, what he was. Yeah, he just he had this like incredible way of of speaking. Um, and just, you know, he would, uh, he, he would just like completely steeped in academic jargon, but he also just had this like kind of impish sort of very, it, it was like a, a caricature of, of an academic. Like I just, I felt like I was watching, like if Christopher Guest made, made Waiting for Guffman or, or, you know, Best in Show about university life, like this guy would be in it, possibly played by, by Christopher Guest. You know, um, you keep throwing all these references, oh, and I have so no old. idea. You know who and so this is going is? to be this is going to be a big problem <laughs> through this podcast. We'll have to also stop and explain references. You don't to know Sarah. what waiting. For, you don't know what waiting for Guffman is. Oh my no, god, it's one but, of the best movies of all time. Uh oh. Oh yeah, no, okay. I don't. Um, <laughs> okay, well, this is Spinal Tap. Are you familiar? You've heard of Spinal Tap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, I've, so heard, I've heard of some, yeah. same kind of gang there. Um, yeah, so this guy was named Patrick Gron- Graz- Grazanka. 
he is a professor of uh, women's studies. Weirdly, I don't think that's, I think he must be a professor of gender studies, but I'm reading a review here that's calling it uh, women's studies. Anyway, yeah, I mean, he he just, um, anytime that Matt Walsh, you know, would continue to press this question, what is a woman? Um, he would just get, you know, sort of more and more, like he said, I don't feel safe in this interview. I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable with, with the direction this is going in. Um, and at one point he's, you know, it, Walsh just says like, you know, I'm just trying to get to the truth. That's all. And, and this guy says, getting to the truth is deeply transphobic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just, there was a moment right in the interview and he wasn't the only one that re- I think the, 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 the doctor, Yeah, right. They 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 both reached this point in the conversation where you could tell they were suddenly they were unhappy. You know, they came in with their to the conversation with their very I'm going to educate you airs friendly or seeming like they're friendly, kind of upbeat. um, You know, using words like kiddos. I yes. (laughs) it, it triggered me a little bit. That, I don't know. It's all part of this. Yeah. It's a strange, like the, there's a lot of words like that. Yeah. Oaks and kiddos and. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they, they start with this and then, and then there was a moment where they recognize, I guess what's happening or maybe they're maybe being made to look, you know, foolish. And with the professor, it was extremely clear that there was a point where, where he was, you know, I think it was, yeah, that was a truth point where he's, at, where he's like, why are you concerned? You know, why are you asking? Right. Um, you know, it, and he's immediately thinking that, you know, this interview is going to be used for the wrong ends. And and now I'm suspicious of this whole thing. And I'm, I'm going to. What know, did they I'm, think? I'm did they out. not Google Matt Walsh? It's it, like it's it's completely obvious what side he's on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I how wonder if he, how do how, how does this ever happen? You know, like, know. They're, they're all the time. There are these documentaries and I'm thinking. Did this person not Google um, the person who's interviewing? Or maybe they weren't told that that would be the. But how the can they not? I mean, but like you know, on you know, Daily Wire, Matt Walsh, like there must be unless there was some like production company sort of created as a false front mm-hmm. to make these people think that they were dealing with like some kind of like you know progressive documentary filmmaking team. Maybe maybe they just thought because it was a documentary, it was automatically on the left. Hmm. Maybe you know, because that's yeah. what documentaries are. <laughs> yeah, I'm very I'm very puzzled by this whole thing and 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 how it came about. But but I you know I I came away so so there was, was also this as you noted this light humor throughout it kind of this deadpan approach that 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 Matt Walsh took. Now I I don't know anything about Walsh outside of this. I don't I've never listened to him. His, his uh mode that he's often in. Yeah. Oh really? It's, it's okay. very entertaining. Okay. Yeah. I've never uh never heard him outside of this. So I I, I don't know if this was but it but it reminded me of this the Colbert style, like back in right. the back in the day when he would have the Colbert pour. Um this deadpan um uh, you know, every sort of every man kind of questioning, but it was it was it was in, intelligently done in a way that would make the other person kind of look foolish. Um, but in this case, it felt like he didn't have to do much poking around to make them look foolish. Um, uh, and that was, you know, I think very effective as a as a tool, I guess. Um, and then there's a point sort of in the middle of the documentary where it gets very serious. And there's discussions of the, there's there's his father who is um, in 
uh, out on bail in Canada because he misgendered his child. Um, and, and suddenly things get very serious and they start talking about, you know, the harms of medical transition, um, about the existence of detransitioners. There's one person, um, I forget whose name. Do you, do you remember? Yeah. So there was a transgender man named Scott Nugent who really, um, spoke incredibly movingly about the devastating, um, medical, uh, consequences he's had from from transitioning and you know that guy was very much you know this is a biological woman who transitioned to male and he actually he looked very male i would not necessarily have known um if, if he hadn't said so and that's usually the case i feel like with 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 transitioners who are 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 female to male you can it's i mean mm-hmm. i don't know maybe maybe you don't you don't feel that way but i often feel like they can they can yeah. pass if they've been on testosterone long That's enough true, i guess yeah um i mean that this scott nugent was just absolutely outraged and is obviously on a crusade now um to stop stop um youth transition uh you know and there were various other people there was um uh, Miriam Grossman, who is a, a child and adolescent psychiatrist, she was the one who was the first to be very critical of the, um, you know, affirmative model types. Uh, and I actually, I, I enjoyed what she had to say. And then I went and looked her up and it turns out she's like kind of a, a conservative firebrand and has written like a couple of books with very you know and i i wondered that too yeah. like when i was when i was watching it i was like who in their right mind if you're just a if you're just a normal you know um psychiatrist or psychologist like would you jump into this would you jump into this conversation and be as critical as yeah. you are and then, and then and then it doesn't surprise me that the people who are who aren't afraid to do it are people whose politics are just so that they're not going to get canceled right right, I mean, they, right. yeah miriam grossman is the author of you're teaching my child what a physician exposes the lies of sex education and how mm. they harm your child. Yeah. So mm. this is the thing, like I, you know, I, I, it was frustrating because you, you would get the impression from watching this film that it's conservatives who are leading the march against youth gender medicine and maybe transgender people in general. It really, it, it oversimplified an incredibly complicated um, issue but on the other hand you can't do anything but oversimplify it so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm torn here like I didn't I, I, I thought that like I guess ultimately I, f- I felt like you know he's not going to convince the people that need to be convinced like if if by if when we talk about this debate we're talking about trans activists on one side who really firmly believe that there are far more trans people than we ever thought. And the fact that kids, you know, the, the increase in, in young people showing up at gender clinics is up like 4,000% in the last decade. And you've got clusters of, of, you know, girls showing up, you know, announcing transgender identities. You've got seventh grade classrooms where suddenly there's five girls saying this. I mean, it's obviously a social contagion. Um, that's at least a huge part of it. So you've got the people who refuse to acknowledge that it is or might be a social contagion, and anybody who says suggests so is is transphobic. Okay, so there's that crowd, and then you've got like the conservatives and the you know fo- fo- various phobes on the right trying to you know keep kids out of bathrooms and 
you know, issuing these very draconian laws. So it's really like these two extreme lanes when the fact is that most people are in the middle. And, you know, I, for one, I do think there are trans people. I do think that there are, are transgender children. I mean, transgender adults were um, presumably transgender children at one point. I think it's a very, very, very small percentage of the population, but I do think it exists. And so um, I think that like most people, if they knew the facts would probably at least be able to entertain that concept, but we can't seem to get to any nuances of this. Yeah. I think I, so I guess I, I disagree in the, in the effect of a movie. I mean, it's hard to know, but um, I think the, the point of it is to mobilize the conservatives, you know, it's to, it's to mobilize the average conservative person who, who, who doesn't know much about what's going on other than, you know, what they might see on Good Morning America. And they're, they, 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 they have this, you know, the, the, you know, men can't be women. Right. And that's, that's what they know how to say. And that's all they know about this issue. Mm -hmm. So from a, from a mobilizing the conservatives perspective, um, this movie is probably going to go a long way. Um, like, uh, like just to get that party in line with what they think is one, one, like their shared knowledge of what they think is happening. Um, and also, you know, maybe what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so from just from like that perspective, that activist perspective, I always get, you know, in my in my head, I, I always step back into the shoes of like from just from like an efficacy perspective, what is this going to do? Mm-hmm. But then you're right that there are these the, the, the there are the people who maybe we need to convince who are are who might not be reached um, by this movie. Um, and, you know, I don't know if if in the end persuasion is what's going to work here. You know, I, I, I kind of have the feeling that the way that we're going to stop um, or at least stop it, it with this gender affirming, like very, uh, you know, gung ho model of how to approach this issue is with, you know, lawsuits, <laughs> you know, yeah. many, many lawsuits. Yeah. And, and there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I, uh, it, it's funny because I try not to be hyperbolic about this, but it, it, you know, most people, I, I have followed this very closely and I've covered this a lot in my podcast and I've made a big point of having people on who are not the usual suspects, you know, the, the people who are out there talking about it on media. I try to have people we haven't heard from before. I've had a, you know, at, at least two uh, trans people themselves who are trans, but yet still oppose the kind of popular ideology that we have out here. Um, but yeah, I guess it's just, I feel, I, I tend to be kind of school marmish about this because I feel like in order to get the attention of the people who will really make a difference, people running medical organizations, like people in mainstream media, people, you know, the New York times, which we're going to talk about in a second and NPR, like you have to, you basically have to make liberals understand that this is not a movement that is analogous to the gay rights movement. This is a totally different thing. And I think the majority of liberals still don't understand that difference at all. Like they, they hear you say something like, well, these kids might not necessarily be trans. They need to have therapy to explore this. The trans activists will call that conversion therapy and the nice liberals will go along with that. You know what? I, I think I think no one understands anything about this issue, right? Like, there's there's very we are obsessed with it, and we're we know a lot about it, but there's th- that's not common. And I think the average person is just uh, going along with you know 
the 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 common perspective of their tribe, whatever that is. Um, so I, I, you know, I think maybe the the role of you and I is to speak to the the, the such liberals. A, such a heavy load to carry, Sarah. Well, <laughs> oh, no. yeah. you know, maybe they'll listen well, to us. I don't well, know. They, I don't they know. shouldn't make us do their. Well, it's not our job to educate them. Right. That's true. Um, it's emotional labor. We're making it our jobs. You know what? Yeah. I'm making it my job. But I, I, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of parallels to the ex-Muslim activism that, you know, I've been a part of for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, the the moderate voices, the the kinds of people who really didn't, you know, they were critical of the religion, but and and, and the harmful practices, but had Muslims in their lives and, you know, loved you know, uh, believers and didn't want anything bad to happen to them. Like, I mean, those were ex-Muslims for the most part because we have yeah. some family members, right? My mom's a Muslim, right? Like, so I don't want her, um, you know, kicked out of the United States or, you know, whatever crazy thing like that that actual xenophobes might might want. Um, you know, I want her to have religious freedom in in the West. Um, so there's there's, you know, elements of it that that remind me of that conversation because it was people. I think there were the the compassionate voices um, that were critical of the faith, but also felt uh, a responsibility to protect Muslims that you know didn't get any air um, and were held back not just by their own hesitations, you know, of of like, oh, am I if I say this, am I? empowering you know the right wing or conservatives or whatever right, there's there, right. there's that element of it so there's a self-censoring that's that's always happening but there's also the fact that that you're kind of swimming upstream if you're trying to convince liberals and progressives or something that they are very or, or your side you know of something that they are uh, very much inclined not to not to agree with so in the end what happens is that uh the people that are talking about islam are uh, people like Pamela Geller and, you know, Fox News, like, mm -hmm. you know, hosts, and they were the one that were taking up all the air, you know, and I wonder um, whether it was my, whether I could have done something differently. Um, it's all your fault. Right. But it, what if, you, you know, what if it was my own, you know, hesitation of, of, of taking up this clear, clear line and wor worrying all the time how my words will be used that made it so that I actually ceded the stage to someone who truly was, you know, truly doesn't care about, about Muslim Americans and their rights. Right. So I, I, I weigh, you know, this weighs on my mind all the time. Wait, and I, I don't know mean? if what I do have mean? like you, you were too conservative, like you, you held your tongue too much. And, and so what do yeah, you mean? Con I mean, conservative in the sense that I didn't, of course, yeah, in, I know, in this I know. discussion, yeah, you were too, <laughs> right. um, you demurred. Yeah. Yeah. I think I did. And I, and I, and I also refused point blank, uh, to engage with the right. Um, and there were maybe, maybe there was one maybe interview that, that, I gave that ended up on on like being published on a conservative website, but I didn't know that that's where it was going. That that's where the writer was gonna, like he was he was going to shop at it at different places. Mm. Um, but I I you know point blank said that you know I'm not going to go on Fox, um, and I you know I I I don't want to to just sit there and agree with somebody whose you know ultimate agenda is something that I don't agree with, um, and you know I was there on my you know on my, on my hill, uh, very noble. And <laughs> I don't know if that was in the end good for 
the discourse, whether that was good for, you know, my cause or even the acceptance of Muslims. Like, I don't know if it was it was good for anything because it, it, I, and I think this happens in a lot of different, you know, right. um, kinds of discourses where the moderate voices self-censor. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and then see, this is what I always say, like, if the smart, thoughtful people don't speak up, the stupid, thoughtless people are happy to do the job. I mean, this is like when John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry on their podcast were talking about whether or not to go on Fox, right? So mm-hmm, Glenn mm-hmm. will go on Fox. He will allow himself to go on Fox and John will not go on Fox. And Glenn's mm-hmm. Glenn's um, justification is that he they can't put words in his mouth. He's going to say what he has to say and he thinks it's important to get his message. Like he stands by what he says. He will not like, you know, be guilty by association. And John says... I won't go on because those aren't the people I need to reach. That audience already sort of, you know, sort is is inclined to believe agree with some of what I say. I need to reach the New York Times readers. I need to reach the NPR people. And going on Fox News will only alienate them. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think that there was that when I started, I was I was where John McCorder is um uh and now I've 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 come around to see the Glenn Lowry perspective. Um, it's hard though, because they can, you know, they can't put words in your mouth, but they can certainly shut you so down. They, they, they can they, certainly so, go to commercial at an inopportune time. Right. But if you're, so if you're there and if you're making sense, um, so we, we think about all the time, there's this like, okay, you spiral into, into right wing, you know, there's a, the, the, the pipeline to right wing conservatism. Um, and that sort of thing is discussed endlessly about what is, you know, the, the sort of the gateway drug to more radical right wing politics. But it it works in reverse, too. Right. Like, like there are people who are watching Fox News who will see somebody like Glenn Lowry who will make sense to them. And they will say, this guy, you know what, he's making a lot of sense and he's making more sense than the host. And I'm going to look him up and then they look them up and then they see the rest of what Glenn Lowry puts out there. And their views are moderated, you know, so that I, I don't know why we presume that this is just a one way. It's a, it's a one way slope. You just become more, yeah. more conservative, but if, but of course it's happening in reverse too. And why don't we look at that audience? You know, why don't we look at conservatives too, as people we can win over, right? Like why, why is it that we have to reach the liberals and we have to reach the, 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 the New York times people and, and not so much. Okay, maybe we can also win over, some conservatives to our more like empathetic um, right. version. Of yeah. Critical. I mean, okay. So, and like, let's talk about this with respect to, to, to gender because, you know, we're, so we're going to talk um, about this 12,000 word article that is in the New York yeah. times magazine. Um, um, it's really a big deal that the New York times is covering gender, especially youth gender areas, you know, conversations around transition because historically uh, they haven't covered it on the news pages and the opinion pages have been very, very much on the activist side. Um, there's been not really any interest in a nuanced discussion about this at the New York times. So Emily Bazelon, who's a staff writer of the New York times magazine, uh, spent eight months reporting this piece. Emily, she, she's, she's an outstanding reporter. She l- writes a lot about legal matters. She covers a lot of hot button social issues through the lens of justice and the legal system uh, she had an amazing piece last summer wherein she collaborated with her sister, Lara Bazelon, who's a public defender, 
um, also oh, they're related. Yeah. Okay. There are four <laughs> Bazelon sisters. I'm going to make another reference that you're not going to get. It's going to, okay. there we go. All right. Bazelon sisters, shake it. <laughs> okay. We'll just, let, we'll just let that, I'm just going to let that sit there. I'm going to let that sit there. Okay. So, uh, Emily, you know, she has a lot of liberal lefty bona fides. She was at Slate. She co-founded Double X, the Double X podcast, which was the women's section at Slate, which I loved back in the in the mid-aughts. They talked about feminism really with a ton of nuance. Um, and so she she has written a piece really laying out some, not all of the complexities of the um, the, the the youth gender uh, question. And she's talked to a lot of clinicians and she's talked to a lot of, not a lot of kids. I think she said she talked to maybe a couple dozen. I mean, she certainly didn't talk to hundreds. Um, she talked to a couple detransitioners. She talked to um, heads of clinics. I... I am torn here because I can see that she's really, she's taking this straight down the middle. This is probably the best we could have hoped for in a, in a New York times piece. And I can only imagine the hoops she had to jump through with editors and anybody else at the times. Um, and so I think it's triumphant um, in a lot of ways, but again, I felt like the takeaway was, yes, this is complicated. And yes, maybe the activists that we see in social media are not um, representative of trans people more broadly. However, the people pushing back are right-wingers and the people facilitating this are the good people on the left. And that's just not true at all. There are tons and tons of people in the center, many, many, many feminists who are uh, calling this into question and that was erased erased as they say uh, it was erased in that i mean it's like the the matt walsh documentary it was it was just um it's as if they didn't exist and um you know i i think it's because they're thorny for both you know if you're a conservative and you want to push a specific you know agenda about here are the bad liberals if there are also you know, liberals and, and, you know, even some socialists, um, you know, feminists who are saying, well, I don't agree with this. Um, that paints a very different political, you know, picture. Yeah. Um, and I think that a similar thing is happening with the New York Times. But what, so did you feel, um, how, how, what did you feel like this piece accomplished um, in terms of, you know, the, the average person, you don't know that much about the issue, uh, you look into this and uh, yeah. what do you come away I mean, with? I felt like it was it was like the broad survey course. Like if you were in college and you were going to take um, the state of gender medicine and ideology in 2002, 101 big survey lecture course and sit in the lecture hall with 500 people, this would be the equivalent of that. We get a pretty big overview, but we don't see really what's going on on the ground. I mean, it's, I think, I th I just, I think so many things. I don't, I, the thing is too, I'm so steeped in this that I, I, I read the piece. I tried really, really hard to read it objectively. And from the point of view of somebody maybe who had not 
thought about it as hard and as constantly as I have. Um, I mean, I, I guess I, I felt that it really ultimately gave too much credence to the idea that, um, that this could be anything but almost entirely a social contagion and, and a social phenomenon. Mm. Um, I just personally, I, I think trans people, I think trans adults, I think adults can do absolutely whatever they want with themselves. There's bodily autonomy. I think trans people should have every right that anybody else has goes without saying, I hope. Um, but we really do have situations where pretty young children, children who are not yet in puberty are being medicalized because of dysphoria that in 80 to 90% of cases goes away uh, after puberty. And most of these kids will be gay or lesbian. I mean, there's an element of uh, the trans movement that is pretty homophobic. And that's a contradiction that's kind of hard to get your mind around. And maybe that's just a different piece. Maybe yeah, you're running this yeah. article to be something that it's not. Yeah, I think that that you're uh, that 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 calling it, you know, a kind of al almost a, a lecture, right? This this very comprehensive uh, piece on on like specifically this this bit, this you know, medical transition and 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 the controversy around it. Um, it, it did, it was hard for me to read, right? I mean, just generally, like it was hard for me to read. It, it was kind of boring at because times. Because it was 12,000 words. It was very long, but it was also very clinical and, and very just, just descriptive, but in a very like, and this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And there was, you know, this, this one detransitioner and she says that this would have helped her, but you don't know anything about this detransitioner, you know? And I, I would have liked to see that picture painted of who this person is and what happened to her or didn't happen to her um and i feel like the humans um who 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 might be harmed by this you know one way or the other are kind of i i, I don't know they, they didn't feel real almost it just felt like a a medical squabble um uh, i i and i get and again i understand that this that that um, that Emily Bazelon would be in a tricky situation. I I can't imagine what it took for her to to write this up and and how many you know edits that sh that she had to do and changes that she had to make before it was some it was it was fit to be published on something like the New York Times. But you know I I wasn't satisfied with it, um, and I don't know if it answered the questions that I had even about medical transition. So I'm not sure mm. what the average person is getting getting out of this other than you know people disagree um you know uh uh clinicians disagree um and i feel like you could have said that in a lot fewer words yeah i mean the problem Truly. too is there there's just not a lot of data um i think at one point she talks about how there were like 50 or so um surgical procedures on done on youth within the Kaiser system, within the Kaiser Permanente system in California. So that makes it sound like there were only 50 procedures done in California, but they're just talking about one particular health network. Like it's mm -hmm. the, the problem with the data too, is that people, people who detransition tend not to return to the clinic. We lose track mm -hmm. of them. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, a lot of the, the data that says that, that detransition is very rare, that's not really true. Now, mm -hmm. does that mean it's incredibly common? We don't know, mm -hmm. but we do know that there are like 
dozens and not if not hundreds. Right. Well, how do you find them? How do you find well, they're detransitioners? They're on YouTube. Well, they're right? on YouTube. Right. That's where right. they are now. Yeah, but that's the you know I mean that's not uh, so it, I I'm I'm sorry for again applying the one the one uh, you know metaphor I'm, I'm I'm very good at making. But it, when 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 you were studying ex-Muslims, it was there was kind of a similar problem mm-hmm. where when people would look at critic like when people would look at how many people are walking away from Islam, they would look at uh, they, they would. Um, look up say a, they said say, say they did a survey of a thousand muslims in the united states then five years later they would call up all those muslims again and say well how many of you um you know left the religion um and so that might be like one way of doing it and that would be like the i guess more preferable way of doing it um but often it wasn't it, it, you weren't calling those same people again you weren't reaching out to the same people again you were going back to the mosques going back to lists that right. said these are muslims you know like uh so call these people because they they already identify uh, as muslim but if you have left the faith you're not going to be at the mosque you're not going to be on those those mailing lists um you know you you how 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 does anybody even find you if you if you truly walked away from their faith from the faith um so there was just um it was just an inherently tricky issue to see how many people actually left the faith um in, because then they disappear into the into the population right um and unless they self-identify as ex-muslim in a very very public way and why would they you know especially in the in the case of ex-muslims where you were stigmatized yeah, well, and you're in, even well, abused by your you're family in, in danger right you're in danger so you would of course you would hide and i think detransitioners are not that different in that in that they feel uh that that they that they are maybe not un, un, under attack but definitely unwelcome no, they're going to the, be exiled in, in the from conversation the community that that embraced them like you know with open arms to say the right. least i mean that's and, the, and that community might be hostile towards oh them. my I mean, gosh it's not they, just exile, told, but... i'm sure they are like and, yeah you know that's the thing is when you you know in a lot of these cases when you transition or you announce that you're going to transition there's like this instant community online that 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 greets you that like you know a lot of these kids they've got you know various mental health issues they've got socialization issues there's big overlap with autism spectrum it's you know go down the list and so to suddenly have a community there everybody is your best friend and you feel like you belong that Mm -hmm. must be very seductive really it seems like the issue is the question of whether you um, provide puberty blockers to people before they've gone through puberty so you know we know the statistics that say 80 to 90 percent of people will uh, desist after they go through puberty. The, the ki- a lot of the kids that are announcing that they're transgender, not all of them, but there is a cohort, they're saying they, they don't want to go to puberty. They, they look at what's coming as some kind of, you know, intrusion in their body. They don't want to develop breasts. They, they don't like to see themselves as whatever sex they are. So they announce that they're a, a different sex and there could be a whole bunch of reasons for that. So the question is, is that potentially a serious enough situation that it would make sense to stop yeah. the puberty to, to medicalize? Or do you say, okay, you know, chances are if you get through puberty, you're going to not feel this way anymore. So you just have to ride it out. Now I understand that if you are forced to go through puberty and what you feel is the wrong body, that must be excruciating because it's going to make it harder to pass. And so I can, I can imagine a little bit what that must be like 
Um, but it seems this is the thing. Like, I feel like ultimately what we're talking about is a fear of not passing. That is what mm. is at the heart of this because nobody is telling somebody over the age of 18 what they can do or not do with their body. This has to do with kids. Mm-hmm. And that's what it comes down to. This is a fear of not being aesthetically in line with who you want to be. And I actually understand. I'm a, I, I, I actually can kind of understand that. But I think we need to be very clear that that's really what we're talking about. Well, there's, I, I think you're right that that's, that's at the heart of a lot of concerns with, you know, teenagers who worry that once they've gotten too far into their, you know, into their development, that they'll never be able to pass. And there's a lot of hysteria around that um, in, in the conversations about passing. But I, you know, if, if you're framing everything as if, if I cannot live as the gender that I actually am, you know, every single day starting now, I'm going to kill myself. It's, 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 it's presented as if, if I can't transition tomorrow, um, it, it will mean the end of my life. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes clinicians have actually said as much in initial meetings that nobody even had the idea that, that they might be at a higher risk of suicide, but the clinician will say, well, if you don't allow this child to transition, this is what will happen. And that's the first time it ever popped into anybody's mind. I mm-hmm. mean, it's unconscionable. Yeah. Yeah. And there's such a thing as, as, you know, creating sort of a symptom pool mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and professionals have a lot to do with creating that symptom pool. And, and, and um, I, I forget the, so there's a, there's a wonderful um, at some point, maybe since we're, it's been an hour and a half almost, um, so we should probably stop. But at some, it's in some one of these podcasts, I would love to talk about the work of Edward Shorter. Mm. Um, he has, I've been reading his books um, nonstop, but he 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 talks about you know in his books he he covers um, the cultural origins of of psychosomatic illnesses like throughout history. Um, So he'll talk about, you know, hysteria and magnetism and, and nerves and all these things. And he'll, 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 he'll cover both, you know, the medical establishment and and what they thought at the time, um, how something came to be fashionable. And then indeed like consensus opinion for a while until it, it disappeared again. And when you look at it, when you look at the trans phenomena from that sort of historical mindset, you've, I, I mean, it, to me, it really changed the way that I'm looking at this whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering why, you know, when I read a piece like this, I'm wondering, you know, we, I guess we've, ex- we, the, the piece has accepted something I'm yet unwilling to accept that this is a quote unquote legitimate phenomena. Right. And by legitimate, I mean, biological uh, inherent within the person and not uh, a, 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 you know, culturally induced um, state. Right. And, and that, and that is so important. You know, we can't, I don't see the point in having this conversation, frankly, in talking about, you know, whether people should or shouldn't be medicated when we haven't, we haven't arrived at the, you know, at the, at the root of the problem to begin with, you know, how can, how can you possibly know if this is the, the, the correct treatment and, 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 and not instead, you know, that, that, yeah, you treat them and they say that they feel better. And how much of that is the placebo effect? How much of that is that you are, you know, you're giving in a, somebody with body dysmorphia, giving somebody who's 
uh, who's anorexic drugs to lose mm-hmm. weight. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, how, how do I know this? And the only way I can know this is if we have a, a, a deep conversation about what exactly is at the root of, uh, of, of gender, you know, like right. of, of, of this feeling. And I think that that's what, that's what Matt Walsh talked about this, this, the actual, the, the one question that's on everyone's minds. And, um, he did not get into it uh, with with any level of of detail or nuance or anything, um, but but I, I I think we have to have that conversation and we all have to have it again and again and again because yeah. I'm not I'm not satisfied with what I'm I'm hearing. So I, a little bit of what like Walsh was going through, which is they were saying all these things um, that don't make sense and don't pass the tests of basic logic and reason. Um, and I've had a similar journey, except of course, I, I, I think I steel manned the, the opposing armies quite, quite a bit more. I read a lot more and I still haven't come to a place where I'm, I'm satisfied with the, with the answer given to me and said there, there are all these other possibilities that feel to me to be very, you know, you know, very likely and, um, frighteningly likely actually. Like when you you say other possibilities, what do you mean? That, that it is, that it is a case of, of a culturally induced, um, illness. I mean, the, the anorexia thing is an interesting analogy because, you know, there are pro Anna they're called, right? Like, you know, groups on, on the internet, you can find subcultures that, um, where, people with severe anorexia will take pictures of themselves and they'll sort of cheer each other on. I mean, it's a sort of very dark corner of the internet. And that is something that would never, ever be sanctioned by any medical professional. Like there is no version of it. It doesn't go out of a cultural kind of container, right? It stays like, you know, something, something within the internet, something that people are doing socially, they are being sick together with the, with the transgender identity. And I'm not, saying that it's necessarily sick but there it's what we have is a phenomenon where people are expressing themselves this way and there's a community around it and it kind of manifests with you know various kinds of aesthetics and it exists as a as a cultural entity but what has happened is the medical establishment has gotten on board and so it has sort of leaped out of the internet and gone into doctors offices and operating rooms and classrooms and courts and all the rest. And I I think that is actually unprecedented. And and the reason that it's happened, I guess, is because it's politicized. I mean, anorexia, I'm sure there's a way to, you know, find some kind of culture war political angle to it, but it's not, not, not as readily as something with gender, like gender, because it's an identity category, right? Hmm. They can, you know, they can, it can be, decided that it's a, a marginalized group. I guess, you know, anorexic people do not have, there's no um, like social justice anorexic movement. It's, there's not actually, I mean, there's, there's body positivity, right? But there's, it doesn't go the other way, interestingly, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I it, th- see, and I think that's like, people say like, why are you so obsessed with this? Or, you know, a lot of the people in the Matt Walsh documentary were, were saying to him, like, why do you care? Why are you so, why are you so interested in this? Like, kind of like pull that maneuver. Well, and as if, as if the only reason you could care is if you hate trans people. Right. Right. Or if you have some kind of prurient interest or, or something like that. But I mean, this, I just can't think of anything else in recent cultural history anyway, that comes 
even close to this. Like this, you know, there's like, you know, anime and and cosplay and autism spectrum and bipolar and trauma. It just plays but out. But isn't that what culture so is, dimensions. right? Like, I mean, that's but culture, it, right? But it the doesn't best... get medical. That is culture. But since when does culture get um, get funneled into something so real that people are are being given powerful medications and cutting off you know, I think, of their body? I think that 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 it has happened. In fact, like this, and just not to the same degree because people were not able to communicate to each with each other and create those like those little communities like uh, what you mentioned with um anorexics who are encouraging each other i mean now and so now there are all the other elements to it that make the social contagion worse and i think um like if it is indeed a social contagion i think there's definitely an element of it that is that is um uh, yes it's obvious that is social, social and that's obvious and i i yeah I, I don't really engage with people who denied that element of it um that is at least somewhat there um but i i actually think that that it the medical profession has never been that that great about these kinds of things i mean there have been um you know not recent history but recent as in like you know hundreds of years ago you know you could say there there when hysteria was an actual real medical diagnosis people like women had um, you know, their, their, their reproductive parts removed because it was, it was seen as that, that was the cause of, you know, strange paralysis right. or, or random like symptoms that really now you're looking at it with the, with the, with modern, the, the eyes of, of, of somebody who knows something about, about the way that nerves work and everything. And, and you're thinking this doesn't make any sense and this is crazy. And yet it was accepted and people got, you know, a, healthy organs removed <laughs> mm-hmm. um but not to the same degree i think you're right that that there's something about this that is unique in its uh in how quickly it developed in the many ways in which it is supported you know and that that's there's yeah. internet culture there's all the, there's there's loneliness there's what there's there's so much that's going on that comes together to support it which makes it i think particularly intractable and very difficult to talk about in a critical way. Yeah. Do you think that this could exist without social media? Yes. But not not to this degree. Not to this but degree. yes. But yes. Yes, it, it I mean it has. Yeah. It has, but just um I, what what is truly unique is one there's there's of course there's a the social media angle of it um which is just a faster version of what we were doing before. Um, but it's not as if social contagions didn't exist before they, they absolutely did. And medical social contagions definitely existed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it, now you have the actual ability to access these kinds of hormones and treatments that would get you close to resembling the opposite sex. Um, and that is, that really is new. Um, so I, I wonder if, if this was a real possibility a hundred years ago, would we have seen a version of this um, take off a hundred years ago, mm. or if this is just a very, very modern um, phenomena from that perspective. I mean, but- there's also like, you know, a hundred years ago, what were gender stereotypes like? I mean, you hear mm. from a lot of these kids and they say things like, well, I don't want to be, you know, I, I'm looking at Disney princesses and, ubiquitous online pornography and the way girls and women are depicted in those places are nothing I relate to. So I must be a boy, you know, you hear that kind of thing or you hear, you know, 
very effeminate men or boys who feel that they're just not masculine enough at all, that it might as well be easier for them to be a girl. I mean, I was kind of poking around on D-Trans Reddit uh, earlier, and somebody was talking about how it was um, a biological female who had transitioned to male and then detransitioned. And she was talking about how she had like a really big nose and she was very, very self-conscious about her nose and the way she was describing it. Like, no, you guys don't understand. It's like big, it's like huge. It's like not even like anything you can imagine. And I thought, you know, and she said, honestly, part of the reason that I transitioned was that I just thought like it would, it would look better if I were on a man, like she was saying that. And, you know, and then she was talking about how she detransitioned and then she was worried that the hormones had actually made her nose even bigger. And so there was a discussion about that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And, and obviously, you know, somebody could say, well, you know, you're cherry picking and that's just one particular story. Yes, that is one particular story. But, you know, one thing that I often come back to as somebody who grew up in the seventies and the eighties you know, there were a lot of ways to be a girl anyway back then. Not so much for boys, but, you know, you could be like a sporty girl. You could be a girly girl. It actually wasn't cool to be a girly girl like in the 70s. Like, I, you know, I would say that it was no accident that the two biggest child stars of the 70s were Jodie Foster in film and Christy mm-hmm. McNichol in TV. And they both grew up to be lesbians. Like there was just there, there were tomboys and that was mm-hmm. cool. And so, you know, what we had sort of after, you know, second wave feminism was sort of over, there was this very, the gender binary got much more pronounced. You saw girly girl stuff. So I'm curious, Sarah, like, how did you feel about being a girl when you were growing up? Mm. Wow. I didn't see that question coming. (laughs) That Um, was a long wind up. I was just going to try to catch you off guard. Um. How did I feel? Well, so I, I I was raised in in like a religious like home, um, and I, coming from a deeply patriarchal society, um, I remember thinking from a very early age. I didn't think of it in terms of like so so deep about like I'm a female and they're males. Like not not so much that, but but I I noticed that that my father and his friends, you know, we, we would have you know people come over like dinner parties or whatever but in in more religious muslim societies like they often split just i mean not like anyone's making them but often you know women go into one room and men are in the Mm -hmm. other room and i I think that naturally happens at any place but you know whatever uh but i would notice that you know the men are talking about serious things (laughs) like they're talking about politics they're talking about war they're talking about um you know it, it felt like stuff of you know not just of the world but but stuff of of real relevance you know to 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 everyone to humanity you know this these big big concepts and then the women were were talking about woman things right like cooking and Mm -hmm. and the kids and all this stuff and a lot of that had to do with i think just the way that they were they were brought up and everybody in that you know in that little group were homemakers you know my mother was a homemaker um and this was like in the 90s when was this 90s yeah yeah. so i was i was a girl in the 90s Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I had that. And I remember thinking that I don't know what I wanted to be, but I didn't want to I didn't want to be like my mom. You know, I didn't want to cook all day and clean all day. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see myself as somebody who would succeed in that, it, it, you know, in that kind of life or could stand it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember being jealous of 
the men and the boys because they got to talk about important things. Um, and I wanted to, you know, that's what I wanted to engage with. And so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't love being, I guess what, what you would call like the gender role, but, but I, I didn't love female spaces so much mm-hmm. in the ways that, you know, the, the, at least the ones that they were around me, they weren't like serious women. They were, um, or what I, what I thought weren't serious women. Right. But, and a lot of it felt like superficial conversations right. to me, conversations I didn't want to have. Um, and then it, it was in the strictly religious sense, there was this idea that I would be, I would get married and I would have a husband and my husband um, would be my, you know, uh, my superior in in a lot of ways. Wow. And, I, and that I would defer to him in, a, in, in, in many ways. And, you know, so my mother, my mother doesn't call my father by his name. Ever? She, ever. Okay. She says the word husband. Like when she calls him, she says husband. So I thought wow. the word that the word for husband, I thought was like a nickname for him or something. I didn't understand that it was the word for husband <laughs> for like a, for like a little while until I was like, oh, wait, everybody. Wait, that's just a that's just a word for husband. Um, but it's disrespectful. What did he call her? By her name. <laughs> did you know his name? Yeah, I knew his name. I knew his name. I just, which is why it was like weird that she wasn't calling him his name. Um, she was calling him, you know, the word for husband, um, which I thought was maybe his nickname. I don't know. Um, as a young, young kid, I'm saying, I'm saying, and then when I got older, I was like, oh, she just doesn't call him by his name. That's, that's strange. Um, but there were it, there's these deeply inculcated norms of respect towards men, you know, and then it's a one way street, um, and, and, and deference to them in, in, in so many ways, um, even in the home. Um, and so I, that's how I grew up. And of course I rebelled against that. And I think that if I had been given the option of, you know, like if someone had told me like, look, you can just opt out of all of this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't have to be a woman. You don't have to give, you know, give birth. You don't have to, uh, get married to any man if you don't want to. Um, you can, you know, you, you can just opt out of this if you take the, these drugs, it will, they will change you physically, maybe mentally, you know, um, and you can live a different life. I think I would have been, you know, very tempted by them. Uh, and it's impossible to put myself back in that position. I, I, I hope I was too smart to, to fall, probably. to fall for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think I probably was, but I, but I, I know that it would have been very, interesting to me and very tempting to me as somebody who naturally didn't didn't want the life that was laid out you know before me um right. you know but but other than that in the it, other than that it my early childhood there was the whole you know girls can be anything girls can be you know doctors and girls can be you know they'll be president and blah 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 and all these and all these girl power uh messaging right. which was which was good you know and i thought that was good and I, I i'm glad that that was available to me at that time and i noticed that that started changing you know and i, I think around the time that there's this this what we are what we're seeing now um is kind of a a a consequence of both social media and truly instagram like instagram has a lot has a big role to play here in in making women uncomfortable with their own bodies um yeah uh but but also this idea that 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 if you are gender non-conforming maybe you are of you know a different sex in your mind you know like you're, you're truly not not a woman at all um 
and and I remember that 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 sort of message started coming. I, I become I became um, just cognizant of it as a young woman, and I'm I'm glad I missed the boat there. Yeah, I think being glad you missed the boat is a recurring theme with people over. <laughs> 30 28 I guess I don't know yeah um yeah I mean it's really it's it is a movement that is rooted in stereotype in a way that it refuses to admit I mean I guess that's why I was frustrated at the, at the end of the Matt Walsh documentary I, I guess this is a spoiler alert but whatever you know he comes you know he's going around asking everybody what is a woman what is a woman and they really they can't answer it um, and then he goes home to his wife, who we haven't met yet mm. in the film. And she's, they've got, I think they've got four kids and she's in the kitchen and she's looking lovely, you know, cooking dinner. And, and, uh, and he says, what, what is a woman? And she says, an adult human female. And I thought, oh, great. Okay. Let's end, let's end here. And then she hands him uh, the pickle jar and she says, can you open this? And he opens it. And it's like mic drop. That's the end of the film. Oh my! It was so. I was so (laughs) mad. I feel like I feel like the pickle jar is now going to become a a meme. (laughs) Yeah, that was just so. It it was fine. I mean, you know, she should have just said that, and it was just the end. But they had to put. I mean, it's a conservative, right? He's a conservative. He has to put his spin on it. It has to be more than that. Um, uh, it has to be. I'm a. I'm a, a adult human female. Also, please help me. Um, strong man um, in opening yes jar. It was yeah ridiculous. yeah um, and I mean so again I mean I think with with the, the Bazelon piece it's like it's a very very big broad piece within which there are dozens and dozens of smaller deeply textured pieces to be to be written and that are being written all the time I mean it's being talked about on all kinds of podcasts including mine I mean people are writing about this Lisa Selen Davis writes about this beautifully on her Substack. and you know there's detransitioners like Helena um and uh, Grace is another one who's a fabulous writer I mean this it's it there, there's not a lack of nuanced in my opinion productive discussion I just felt like for whatever reason it wasn't represented in the piece that the it was just the, in the, either right in no either in, in either was or... sort of, right if anybody criticizes this it's because they're conservatives and they don't but they don't believe this. They think these people are crazy or lying, or they think that these people should are are bad and should just not have any rights or something like that. And mm-hmm, it's just it's mm-hmm. so there's so much going on with it. So well, it's, it's yeah. interesting with the Basilon piece that um, I don't know if you took a look at the comments, but there was the yeah. you know, the, it's the 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 first the 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 first few of the readers picks and those are the ones I always go to not right. the NYT picks or whatever but uh, the reader picks and the first few were um, look I'm not a conservative I'm not right wing and you know I find that there's a lot here that we need to talk about yeah. like the um, and that was that it, it was interesting to me that that was that those were the ones that were recommended by so many like so many people because yeah. they I think they read that bit about hey this is right-wing backlash and they thought no it's you know no it's not yeah Um, no i mean i am a lifelong moderate democrat but i strongly object to medical transitions for people under the age of 18 again that's disingenuous right i mean then that's disingenuous even if this piece that's very good it's disingenuous to pretend like the pushback is conservative 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 even as she covered the detransitioners and they voiced their you know in a sentence or two they 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 said one thing or another but 
she didn't present that them like those people are also the people talking about this and they're also the people pushing back against this yeah. and um yeah it was it was it was that part was very frustrating to me but she's also getting you know she's getting beat up on twitter by the trans activists they think oh, yeah. hate, hateful and it's just vitriolic i don't envy it it's it's yeah, impossible it's an impossible situation um and but i but that is why it has to be engaged with like it's 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 impossible if only one person is doing it at at a place like the new york times i think if everybody kind of steps in and allows themselves to be part of this discussion it will be so much less scary because mm-hmm. the vast vast majority of people want to have a reasonable you know conversation i, I about know it. so many people that um don't talk about this issue like so many so many of my friends who are who are you know writers and 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 public you know intellectuals and vast majority on the 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 moderate left to the to even the far left some of them who have um who have doubts about this or sometimes just um straight up don't believe the 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 mainstream narrative of what's going on and very few of them um you know some of them some of them even even said like explicitly to me i'm never going to talk about this yeah you know i don't want to i don't i i I never want to talk talk about this um, and I and, think because they have kids in school, I mean, they have a lot to lose. Is that your impression? Like, what, they, what I mean, are they have the a lot? Yeah, them? right. They they don't want to. They don't. I mean, especially if you are in the public space and you know you're a thinker or a writer, this is a black mark, um, and this is something that very few people are willing to to um, you know put on their resume because it's a huge. It's 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 something that follows you forever. Um, and uh, why would why would somebody who's who's not like uh, directly affected by this um put themselves in the line of fire in this way um and and i think that that's the the, for for many thinkers and writers where who want to be who want to be welcome at the new york times for the occasional (laughs) you know piece i mean why would why would they engage um and and this is this i've seen this happen before right i've I've seen that this all of this has happened before and what it led to was was just a space where no one could talk about what was obvious and there were political implications to that as well i mean we're we're in the united states where the ex-muslim issue didn't really uh wasn't as effective uh, um or i'm sorry um as um uh important in terms of our specific policies mm-hmm. but in europe where there's you know they have many 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 migrants coming in they have to have all these like broad initiatives to integrate um the the migrants who are primarily muslims into the population and this is a very it's a very real issue for people on the ground there right and and yet their discourse is just as absurd as the one we have here um yeah well i mean i understand why people would be afraid to speak out if they have kids that are going to be impacted i mean just there's there's a lot of stakes and as somebody who has really nothing to lose, I don't have, uh, I don't, I don't have kids and, uh, you know, I don't have, uh, I don't have a post at the New York times. I feel like if, if those of us who are able to speak out, if we don't, I, I this sounds uh, histrionic, but we're going to have blood on our hands. I really <laughs> yeah. think so. I mean, I, I yeah. do. It, ultimately I, I want to discuss this as carefully as possible and I don't want to be hysterical, but I do think that this is a, an enormous medical scandal. And we're going to look back on 10 years. It, we're going to look back in 10 years 
the way we look back at like the satanic preschool panic and recovered memory syndrome Mm -hmm. times a hundred. It's going to be exponentially more destructive than than those trends. So we'll just mark my words. (laughs) Well, I'm listening to you, Megan. I'm listening. I'm listening to you. Um, I think this has been a good start. What do you think? Have we have we repelled yeah. everybody? Have we yeah, uh, scared think, them all off? Yeah, now our audience is down to ten. Um, so thank you. But to that's the, good. But we started the ten zero. listeners. We started <laughs> zero, so that's uh, it's more than we started with. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, a special place in hell. I've enjoyed being here with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, this has been this has been great. We'll do it again. <laughs> And uh, people, if you, uh, if if you, if there's anything, if 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 anybody's listening, uh, please write to us and tell us um, what you'd like us to talk about. Do you want? Where oh, can where can people find you, Sarah? Um, you can find me on well on Twitter, sadly. Um, but yeah, you can find me on <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. But if that's too annoying, um, I appreciate uh, people subscribing to my Substack. Um, that's called hold that thought. Um, but you can just look up Sarah Hader and you'll find it. Um, and there you can, you know, even, even you don't, you don't have to be a paying subscriber. Of course, I really appreciate that, but I just want, I just want to build, um, and, and, an audience there because it makes me, it makes me nervous to just be, have, just have Twitter as my, my really, I don't know why that would make you nervous. It's such a secure place to be. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And I can be found at, at Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N underscore Dom <laughs> D-A-U-M. <laughs> uh, and also um, at the Unspeakable Podcast, which is my other podcast unrelated to this one, although probably some overlap with topics. And uh, yeah, this is a Substack podcast, we should say, but you know, we're, we're very much in beta mode here. So um, you who are listening are part of this uh, grand experiment with us. So thank yeah. you. For, thank you for being with us. And uh, we will find our way. All right. Until next time. All right. Thank you, Megan.